millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to a History of Europe, Key Battles, the Battle of Lepanto, Part 5 of 5. If you haven't yet listened to Parts 1 to 4, now might be a good time to do so. But if you have already done so, or want to continue anyway, then let's begin. Last week I described the formation by Pope Pius V of a holy alliance in May 1571 in response to the conquest of the island of Cyprus by the Ottoman Turks. With unusual speed, the naval forces of Sicily and Spain, those of the Papacy, the Knights of St John, Florence, Genoa and Savoy were joined to create a fleet capable of taking on the might of the Ottoman navy. In total, a combined force of 200 galleys and 50,000 men. Spain assumed responsibility for 50% of the cost of the venture, Venice 35% and the papacy 15%. All fighting would be under the banner of the League, and any important decisions were to be taken by a majority vote of the three leading commanders, representing Venice, Sebastiano Venier, for the papacy, Marc Antonio Colonna, and for Spain, King Philip's half-brother, Don John or Juan of Austria. The choice of the 24-year-old, Don Juan, was inspired. He was the illegitimate son of Charles V by a German lady called Barbara Blomberg, whom the emperor had met whilst on campaign in Germany. Although there were some concerns about Juan's youth, and his reputation for rashness, he was good-looking, amiable, full of enthusiasm, and a son of the revered former Emperor Charles was an ideal figurehead for the campaign. He had already acquired some active military experience by helping put down a serious Morisco rebellion in Spain the year before. By August 1571, the full Christian naval force had assembled at Messina in Sicily. Don Juan drew up the sailing orders. He, together with his fellow commanders, Venier and Colonna, would take the centre with 64 galleys. The right wing, with 54, would be under the command of the Genoese Admiral Jean-Andrea Doria. The left, with 53 ships, would sail under the command of the Venetian Augustino Barbarigo. In addition, there was to be a small vanguard of eight galleys and a rearguard of six. 
in the centre of the fleet was the Spanish flagship, the Real, which flew the banner of the Holy League. Now held in a museum in Toledo, the banner was made of blue damask interwoven with gold thread of a length of 7.3 metres and a width of 4.4 metres at the hoist. It displays the crucified Christ above the coat of arms of Pius V of Venice, of Charles V and of John of Austria. The coats of arms are linked by chains symbolising the Holy Alliance. The galleys of the late 16th century, powered by wind, were the descendants of a long line of ships, which since classical times had dominated the Mediterranean. Each kingdom, or republic, made their own style of galley, but a typical one was 4 to 1 metres in length, 5 to 6 metres broad, displaced approximately 200 tonnes, and possessed two latine sails. Its main propulsive force were the rowers sitting on about two dozen benches along each side of the ship. A larger variation of the galleys were a type of ship called the galleasses. They were ships developed from large merchant galleys. Converted for military use, they were higher, larger and slower than regular galleys. They had up to 32 oars, each worked by up to five men, and usually had three masts. In battle with their powerful guns, but lack of manoeuvrability, they were given the task of disrupting the enemy line with artillery fire before the two main fleets came to blow. The Venetians were short of rowers, so Don Juan at once offered them the loan of 4,000 soldiers. Privately, he assured his wary Venetian allies that he was prepared to go against the traditional, cautious approach of King Philip Spain. Indeed, he had every intention of taking battle direct to the Ottoman fleet. While the Christians were busy preparing, a large Turkish fleet, confident after the fall of Famagusta in Cyprus, had entered the Adriatic. Joined by reinforcements from the Corsair admirals of North Africa, they were sailing westwards to confront a Christian fleet. Their spies in Messina had brought back information about the enemy's whereabouts and planned tactics. One Muslim corsair, Kara Hodja, managed to sneak into the port of Messina one night in order to assess the strength of the Christian fleet. Not detecting Barbariga's contingent, at anchor in another part of the harbour, the size of the fleet was estimated at only 140 galleys. One crucial aspect of the Battle of Lepanto was to be that both sides were under the impression that they were dealing with a numerically inferior enemy. A council was held among the Christian allies to consider the options available. The main objective was to discourage further Turkish aggression, for which there were two possible proposals. The first was to attack some Ottoman fortresses in the area of the Peloponnese, which served as stepping stones for any fleet sailing round Greece. The other proposal was to seek out and try to destroy the Ottoman fleet. The Venetians argued fiercely for the latter, and after much discussion, their argument won out. The Christian fleet sailed from Messina on the 16th of September and took four days to advance 125 miles to the port town of Crotona on the southern coast of Italy. 
Bad weather delayed the fleet for a week, but it crossed the Gulf of Trento on the 25th of September, heading due east to reach Corfu two days later. There they learnt how the Turks recently raided the island, then headed south and were reported to be using the port of Lepanto in the Gulf of Corinth. It was also reported that the Turks were short of men due to sickness, and that their fleet consisted of around 200 galleys. While anchored in Corfu, Don Juan inspected the fleet, condemning four Venetian galleys which were unfit for service. Tensions rose between the various commanders who objected to some of the instructions of Don Juan, but the papal representative, Marco Antonio Colonna, helped to restore calm, persuading all sides that the real enemy was the Turkish fleet, not each other, and that they must focus clearly on the task at hand. News of the fall of Famagusta reached the Christians in late August. When the brutal treatment of the Christians, especially of Bragadin, was learned of, a wave of indignation swept through the fleet. If the intention of Lala Mustafa was to intimidate the enemy, the tactic completely backfired. On the contrary, old rivalries vanished in an instant, as all Christians put aside their former differences, united in anger and in determination to seek vengeance. On the 3rd of October, the fleet sailed south in search of the enemy, not too fast so as not to overtire their crews. Meanwhile, the Turkish fleet tentatively headed west to meet their adversaries. Their chief commander was Ali Pasha, and he was supported by two experienced captains. Mehmet Shuluk, better known in Europe by his nickname of Sirocco, was the governor of the port city of Alexandria in Egypt and Uruj Ali was an experienced privateer, an Ottoman admiral. The entire Ottoman fleet was composed, it is estimated, of 278 ships, more than 30,000 soldiers and some 50,000 sailors and oarsmen. Neither side knew exactly the whereabouts or exact size and strength of the other, but both assumed they had the advantage and were eager for battle. As the two forces approached each other, the fate of the Mediterranean hung in the balance. The two fleets met at dawn on the 7th of October at the entrance of the Gulf of Patras on the west coast of Greece. A contingent of galleons on the Christian side had been delayed, but Don Juan did not want to wait for them, determined to engage the enemy at once. The Turks were waiting information in the shape of a huge crescent. The Christian fleet advanced in a line from north to south. At the northern end, close to the northern coast, was the left flank of 53 galleys, mainly Venetian, led by Augustino Barbarigo and Marco Carini. The central division consisted of 62 galleys under Don Juan himself, along with Marco Antonio Colonna. The right flank to the south consisted of another 53 galleys under the Genoese commander Jean Andrea Doria. Two galleasses were positioned in front of each main division. A further reserve force was stationed behind to become available as required. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. 
Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The Allies rounded the northwestern corner of the Gulf, called Scoffra Point, at about seven o'clock in the morning, at which point the two sides came into sight for the first time. Final battle lines were formed as the two sides closed on each other, the Christians sailing eastwards. Don Juan ordered a cannon to be fired to signify the commencement of battle, and an answering shot came from Ali Pasha's flagship. The sun shone from the clear skies on an impressive sight, every galley richly decorated with banners and tapestries. The two sides clashed first at about half-past ten in the morning at the north end of the line. Barbarigo, who was a little ahead of the other Christian divisions, engaged the Turkish right flank, led by Sirocco. The first to fire were two galleasses, commanded by a pair of brothers related to Marcantino Bragadin, for whom the matter was a question of family revenge. With just their third shot, they struck a Turkish vessel and caused it to sink, achieving first blood for their side. The fighting was intense, with the Venetians' flagship at one point set upon by five Turkish vessels. They rained arrows upon the Christians, one of them wounding Barbarigo mortally in the eye. But Marco Carini stepped in and took over command. The heavy guns of the galleasses of the Christians were particularly effective, striking several of the enemy and disrupting their lines. This part of the battle ended in total victory for the Christians, who succeeded in driving the entire Turkish right wing into the shore. The Turks abandoned their ships and tried to escape into the surrounding hills, but they were pursued and hacked down as they fled. Sirocco was captured, but died of his wounds soon after. The focus of the battle now shifted to the centre, where Don Juan's ships clashed with those of Adi Pasha, the two flagships heading deliberately straight at each other. They met and became entangled, men leaping and scrambling from ship to ship, fighting hand to hand. An eyewitness, Giovanni Contarini, left a vivid account of the fighting. Quote, there happened a mortal storm of aquabus shots and arrows, and it seemed that the sea was aflame from the flashes and continuous fires lit by fire trumpets and other weapons. Three galleys would be pitted against four, four against six, and six against one, enemy or Christian alike, everyone fighting in the cruelest manner to take each other's lives. And already many Turks and Christians had boarded their opponents' galleys, fighting at close quarters, with short weapons, few being left alive and death came endlessly from the two-handed swords, scimitars, iron maces, daggers, axes, swords, arrows. Others escaping from the weapons were drowned by throwing themselves into the sea, thick and red with blood. End quote. 
Twice in the late contingent of Genissaries boarded Don Juan's flagship. Three times the Spaniards returned the attack, the last time under heavy covering fire from Kelowna. It was on this occasion that Ali Pasha was struck on the forehead by a cannonball. Scarcely had he fallen when a Spanish soldier stuck it on a pike and waved it aloft to give courage to his comrades. With their admiral killed and their flagship captured, the Turks rapidly lost heart. Many ships were destroyed in the fighting, and others turned and fled. To the south, meanwhile, things were going less well for the Christians. From the beginning, the commander of the right flank, Doria, was concerned that, as his wing was unprotected by land, it could be outflanked and surrounded by the stronger Ottoman left flank, commanded by Uruj Ali. To avoid this danger, he altered his course towards the southeast, which unfortunately left an ever-widening gap between the Christian centre and himself. Opinions are divided as to whether this was a poor decision by Doria, maybe even influenced by cowardice, or whether credit should instead be given to the skills of Uruj Ali. Either way, the Ottomans, having diverted the Christian right flank, changed course to attack the Christian centre. The move proved effective and managed to prevent a complete collapse of the Ottoman fleet. However, as dusk approached, the scale of the Allied victory became clear. All the Turkish galleys, except for Uruj Ali's squadron, had been sunk or captured. Tens of thousands of Ottoman sailors had been killed, 3,000 captives taken, and 15,000 Christian galley slaves freed. Losses, though, had also been heavy on the Christian side, with an estimated 8,000 dead and over 20,000 wounded, among them the Spanish writer Miguel Cervantes, later famous for writing Don Quixote. When news of the Allied victory reached Venice, the sombre mood of fear and trepidation was immediately lifted. Pope Pius ordered that throughout Christendom, church bells should ring in celebration. When news reached Spain, Philip was absolutely delighted, and celebrations were held in Madrid for several days. Don Juan was given full share of the public glory, and featured duly in the six large canvases which Philip commissioned some years later from the Genoese painter Luca Cambiasso to commemorate the victory. John Julius Norwich gives a large part of credit for the Christian victory to Don Juan, quote, whose handling of his unwieldy and heterogeneous fleet was masterly, and whose brilliant use of firepower was to have a lasting effect on the development of naval warfare, end quote. The Battle of Lepanto is recognised as marking the end of an era, where awed galleys would ram each other head-on. In future, sea battles would be decided by guns, rather than by swordsmanship. This, in turn, would mean bigger, heavier ships, which could be propelled only by sail. Lepanto is widely regarded as one of the decisive battles of Europe, the greatest naval engagement in the Mediterranean between the Battle of Actium, fought only some 60 miles away, and the Napoleonic Wars. In the English-speaking world, its fame rests today largely in a poem by G.K. Chesterton about the event. And in Catholic countries, the battle has passed into legend. Although certainly significant, Lepanda did not mark a decisive point in the reviving of Christian forces. European disunity prevented the Allied forces from pressing their victory or achieving a lasting supremacy over the Ottomans. 
in Netherlands, the Protestants were in armed rebellion against the rule of Philip II, forcing the Spanish king to divert his attention resources in that direction. Meanwhile, civil war plagued France, made worse by the infamous St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre of the 24th of August, 1572, which I shall go into in more detail in a future episode. Two years after Lepanto, Don Juan led a much smaller navy to capture Tunis, but the year later the city was retaken by Uj Ali, and thereafter stayed under Muslim control. The Venetians, without sufficient support from fellow Christians, were not able to recover Cyprus. In 1573, they bowed to the inevitable and reluctantly concluded a peace with the Ottomans, whereby they relinquished all claims to Cyprus. And in the following century, Crete was to go the same way. The Ottomans quickly rebuilt their fleet, which at first sight looked as impressive as it was before Lepanto. The Grand Vizier showed a brave face when he publicly boasted to the Christian ambassadors that the Holy League had, quote, merely singed off the stubble from my master's beard, which had only grown back stronger as a result, end quote. While they, the Ottomans, had succeeded in lopping off one of the arms of Christendom with the capture of Cyprus. It was a masterpiece of propaganda, which is still much quoted today, yet the truth was that the Ottomans had suffered a serious reverse, with the loss of many experienced soldiers and sailors as well as ships, which would take a long time to recover from. The most immediate beneficiaries of the weakening of Ottoman power in the Mediterranean were actually the local rulers of North Africa, where the Turks had never been popular. Without one dominant power in the region, the Barbary Corsair pirates thrived. Yet the real importance of Lepanto from the perspective of Christendom was one of the much-needed boost of morale. The Christian victory clearly demonstrated that the Ottomans were not invincible, and it is also important to bear in mind, although counterfactual, that a decisive victory for the Turks at Lepanto could well have left the whole Mediterranean at their mercy, and so changed the course of European history. The truth was that both the Ottoman Empire and King Philip II's empire were being consumed by the staggering annual costs of maintaining hundreds of galleys, and so both needed a period of peace to recover. The two sides came close to striking a formal peace deal in 1573, and after Sultan Selim II died in 1574, his successor, Murat III, finally signed a deal with Spain in 1577. Thereafter, with both superpowers exhausted, a curious calm descended on the Mediterranean. At the same time, the region was losing its former importance due to the opening up of the New World, and attention was shifting to the Atlantic. Spain, with her possessions of Naples and Sicily in the south, and Milan in the north no longer disputed, and the city of Genoa firmly in her sphere of influence, the rest of Italy and the Mediterranean were no longer of great interest. Her real attention was now fixed on the west and north, where her perpetual problems in the Netherlands and her rivalry with England were consuming almost all her time. As for the Ottomans, they had lost the initiative in the Mediterranean, had social and economic problems of their own, and never again had a leader as ambitious and as ruthless as in the heydays of Mehmet the Conqueror or Sultan 
the Magnificent. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.